As we've already mentioned, this is the third week of Advent, so thank you for being here. We've been using questions uh, to guide our time together. Our first question was, I think the most important question of all as we celebrate Christmas, why was it necessary for Jesus to be born? Uh, Last week we took up the question, why was it necessary and how was it possible that Jesus was born a king, even though his father was not a king, his earthly father was not a king? And today's question is what is the connection between Christmas and the poor? Why do the poor seem to be at the center of the original Christmas story? My very first memory, I think I can safely say, my very first memory actually happened at Christmas. We were attending a Christmas concert in, in my hometown, and on the way I noticed that my mom had brought a toy with her. Now, at this particular age, I wanted that toy very much and coveted it the entire drive, thinking that maybe possibly it was for me. I didn't understand why my mom had not wrapped it, but uh, maybe she had something else planned. We got to the concert. She picked up the toy, brought it in, placed it in a big barrel of toys that other people had brought. You're going to find out later that the event was happening in connection with Toys for Tots, a charity that gives toys to kids at Christmas who might not otherwise get them. So literally, as long as I can remember, I have known that there's a connection between Christmas and the poor. You see that when you're shopping around in the holiday season. You go into a store right before you get into the store. There's somebody out there with a Santa Claus hat ringing a bell from Salvation Army. We're doing that here. We're trying to raise as much money as possible for Abba's house. At our other uh, Bayou City in Spring Branch, we are trying to raise as much money as possible for Prestige Learning Institute, an amazing ESL program ministering to immigrants and refugees down in southwest Houston. There is a connection between Christmas and the poor. Where does that connection come from? I think we see it in Luke chapter 4. would love for you to open your Bible, pull out your listening guide, or something else to write some things down on. I think that what we're saying this morning from God's word will be good things to remember. Luke chapter 4, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They fled to Egypt. They returned to Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Now he's on the brink of beginning his ministry. And it says in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly throughout the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, And that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. What is the connection between Christmas and the poor? Why do the poor seem to be at the center of the Christmas story? You see in your listening guide, because Jesus has always been good news for the poor. Speaking about himself, prophesied by the prophet Isaiah generations before, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, when we talk about the poor, who are we talking about today? We're talking about anyone who lives below the standard of normal. 
Clearly, we're thinking financial, but there are other categories of poverty as well. You see those in your listening guide. Of course, there's financial poverty. There's relational poverty. Probably for as long as you can remember, back into your elementary days, there was kid, a kid or kids in your class that just didn't fit in. They were always on the outside. That didn't stop when we left elementary school. It follows us into our places we work, into our neighborhoods. There are people who would consider themselves living below the standard of normal relationships. There's spiritual poverty. As followers of Jesus, we would consider anyone who doesn't believe that Jesus is the one true way to God as being spiritually impoverished, lacking the truth. There's emotional poverty. There are people who have such a low view of themselves. When they think of themselves, they think of that below the standard of normal. All kinds of types of poverty. And most of us consider ourselves in the middle. Forbes magazine just published their 2017 list of wealthiest people on the planet. The usual suspects are at the top. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, the president and founder of Amazon.com. Right? Just in case you're wondering, that's $86 billion, $75 billion, $72 billion, respectively. We've got to feel sorry for Jeff Bezos. You know, he's only got $72 billion. He's in third place. Right? That's the top end, obviously. 2008, sitting in my office, CEO of a charitable organization in India was, was there with me. And he was telling me about these women in India who have been trafficked against their will and are forced to work in brothels. I just couldn't wrap my mind around it, that in 2008, that, that was happening around the world. I thought that was something that maybe happened 150 years ago, 100 years ago. I, I just couldn't imagine that in our modern day with technology and awareness and knowledge available to everybody, it seems that that would still be happening. But he assured me that it was. So later that year, I got on an airplane and flew to India to see it for myself. Staying in a hotel, we wake up that morning. He says, let's go to the red light district today where these women are being trafficked and sold uh, into the sex trade. And, uh, and so we get in the car. And I don't know what I was expecting, uh, that there would be some section of the city that had a sign that says, welcome to the red light district. But it, it wasn't that. We, we got out of the car on a very busy commercial street with lots of people around. And he said, we're here. I was like, there's no way that we're here. This looks like just a very normal, this would be normal for America's standards type of place. He says, no, we're here. And we turn one corner. We don't turn three lefts and then a few more rights and eventually stumble upon it. We turn one corner, a street right off the the main thoroughfare of this city that's larger than Houston, and yet none of us have ever heard of it. And it was what I would consider apartment building after apartment building after apartment building after apartment building, literally as far as my eyes can see. And he says, "This this this is all it. Uh, we went into one of those buildings. It was about a 10-story building, and he had a relationship with this particular brothel owner because what this organization was trying to do is the children who are born in these places, he's and his organization are trying to get them out and raise them in a family environment. Right? We walk into one of the apartments. Now, it's not an apartment like you and I are thinking of it. You, you, as soon as you step in, concrete walls, concrete floors, no decorations, a wooden rickety bench, lining the, the waiting room. Step in a little bit further. There's a small hallway with what I would describe as four closets in it. The closets have locks on both sides. You could lock yourself in or you could be locked in. We open up one of those doors. The closet is just big enough for one 
twin-sized mattress underneath the small bed, a few simple personal belongings, and that's it. I can't imagine that there is someone in a worse situation in the world today than whatever woman was forced to live in that closet. So when we say that we are in the middle, we are gated in by billionaires and the poorest of the poor on planet Earth. And I think that's a good place for us to be today because there's always someone in the world who's going to make us feel rich and there's someone in the world who's going to make us feel poor. There are people who are going to make us feel like we have more than enough and there are people who make us feel like we don't have enough. And today we want to step further into the scripture with one eye on someone else's poverty and one eye on our own. Because what we're going to see from the scripture in just a few minutes is that God is willing to give himself to those who can see their own poverty. And when we're talking about the poor in America, it's, it's usually sandwiched in politics. And we talk about the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. Those who will be good stewards of what they're given and those who won't. And if you've ever tried to help somebody more than a few times, then you've been taken advantage of, I'm sure. Uh, years ago, I was, wanted to spend some time with my college roommate. He happened to be driving across a good portion of the country, from the Atlantic coast to the Midwest. And I said, hey, to spend time, why don't I fly to Nashville, Tennessee, and on your way, uh, we just meet up, and then I'll finish the drive with you. And he thought that was a good plan, and so we arranged what time uh, I was going to land so he could just come by and pick me up. And so I took a very, very early flight from Houston, flew to Nashville, Tennessee, because we were meeting at 8 o'clock in the morning. He was going to come by the airport, pick me up, and we were going to finish the drive. So I get my stuff. I don't have any stuff. Actually, I just take, have a backpack. I walk to the curb, kind of waiting on him. And you know, it's eight o'clock. It passes 8.15, 8.30. I mean, he's driving a long way, so I'm not getting freaked out about it. It's hard to pin a, you know, a, a, a specific time. And, but about 45 minutes later, I decide to call him on the phone and I'm like, hey, I'm here. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm here in Nashville, eight o'clock. That's when we agreed to meet. You're coming to swing by. He's like, dude, I'm at eight o'clock tonight. So I have 12 hours to either hang out at the airport or do something else. So I catch a bus that takes me down to Nashville, downtown Nashville, Tennessee, and I just wander around down there and see stuff and just do random things. About 6 o'clock that night, I'm starting to get hungry, and, and I'm a super healthy person, so there's a McDonald's there, so I'm going like, to get McDonald's. And on my way into the McDonald's, a, what, a man that I would consider homeless, I mean, it was just based on the way he looked, Uh, steps in front of me and says, uh, could I have a few dollars? And I said, well, I don't really have any dollars to give, but I'm getting ready to go into this McDonald's. I would love to buy you some food. Would that be a good thing? And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. So I go into the McDonald's. He waits outside. And uh, this is going to surprise you, but I've been to McDonald's a couple couple times, so I don't need to look at the menu. (laughs) I know exactly what I'm going to get. I mean, I know what I'd get today if I go there for lunch after church. So I didn't need to look at the menu, but I was looking at the menu because I'm trying to think, like, what's, what does he want, number one? Number two, how can this work for him? You, you know, if I just get him a big, big Mac, he can eat it right now. But if I get, like, a handful of cheeseburgers and hamburgers for him, he could eat one now. He could maybe eat one later tonight. He could eat one tomorrow. He could kind of save it up. Just sit there trying to think, like, what's best for him? And, uh, and, and so I order a bunch of hamburgers, a bunch of cheeseburgers, 
so that he can spread it out however he wants to. And, and you know, if you've ever tried to help somebody, which you have because you're good people, it feels good to help. It really does. God has wired up helping people and joy together. And so if you don't have a lot of joy today, I would ask you, are you helping anybody? And so I'm excited. I feel, feel great. I mean, it's such a small thing, but I feel great. And I walked out. I hand in the bag. I got him a drink. Everything's in there. And he says, what, no change? And I was like, oh, man, no, no change. And uh, downtown Nashville, Tennessee, I watched this guy take my McDonald's bag, which you know, which is not that big of a deal, but, and walks across four lanes of streets, and there's a park bench on the other side. He sets down the food and walks off. This leaves it there, right? Like I said, if you've tried to help people more than a couple of times, that has happened to you. So it'd be tempting to say, well, there's the undeserving poor, and there's the deserving poor, and as a way to mask my own greed and selfishness, I just lump everybody into the undeserving. But that's not what we're doing today. We're not worried about the condition of somebody else's heart. We're worried about the condition of our heart and our attitude towards the poor because Jesus has always been good news for them. Now, some of us in the room are a little bit closer to our three billionaires than to that woman in India. And so you may be wondering, is this one of those pastor messages that's going to make me feel bad about the resources that I have? Some of you have a lot of resources through hard work and ingenuity. And it's not one of those messages. You can look into the scripture. Some of the heroes of the hall of faith were very wealthy. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... David, Solomon, Joseph in the Old Testament, these are wealthy people in our modern standards, not just biblical standards. In the New Testament, we see people like Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy person, and because of his wealth and his influence, when Jesus was crucified and dead, Joseph was able to appear before Pilate, the governor of Israel from Rome and asks for, asks for Jesus' body. And Pilate, because of who Joseph was, mostly because of his resources, gave Jesus' body to Joseph. Again, because Joseph was a wealthy man, he owned a tomb, and that was the tomb that Jesus borrowed for three days. In Acts, we meet Barnabas, who in the beginning was partnered up with the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul gets all the headlines because he wrote more letters of Scripture. But it was Paul and Barnabas together. And Barnabas was probably wealthy, and he owned a piece of property, which most people did not in that cultural moment. But people in his local church had needs. And so Barnabas went and sold all of his land and gave 100% of the proceeds to the church so they could distribute it to the poor. In Acts chapter 16... The Apostle Paul shares the gospel with a business owner named Lydia. And she received the message of Jesus and then immediately invited Paul and Silas and Luke and his other missionary friends to come back to her house. And her house became home base for the very first church in Philippi. So if you have a lot of resources today and God has blessed you in that way, you don't have to feel bad. It is likely that God wants to use those resources to strategically unroll his kingdom Moving forward. And as we read the scripture, if we do consider ourselves rich in some way, we want to be careful and we want to be generous. 
you need to be careful if you have resources because our money can and does undermine our faith and we need to be generous. But in the Christmas story, we see that Jesus is good news for the poor. We see that in three stories. The story of Mary and Joseph, the story of Anna, the story of the shepherds. We'll start with Mary and Joseph. It says in chapter 2 of Luke, verse 1, At that time the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now, I don't know Mary and Joseph's uh, financial status back in Nazareth where they were from. But by the time they got to Bethlehem, they acted as if they did not have a lot of wealth to their name. We know that for a couple of reasons. Later on in Luke chapter 2, they're going to dedicate Jesus in the temple. And back in the Old Testament, that process was prescribed. And if you went to dedicate your firstborn son in the temple, you would offer a lamb. But there was provision made that if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could offer two birds. And later on in Luke chapter 2, we see Mary and Joseph offering those birds. So It appears that they could not or did not afford a lamb. The other reason I don't think that they had a lot of resources to their name in Bethlehem is because the way the innkeeper treated them. Now, we just gloss over it because it's one brief sentence in a beautiful Christmas story. But this innkeeper has to be the most terrible person who has ever lived. (laughs) Mary is fully pregnant. Nine months pregnant. If you've been around a woman who's nine months pregnant, like you just want to help them. They don't even need help, but you want to help them. But this innkeeper was like, man, pass. Then the innkeeper said, we don't have any rooms for you, but you can go and stay in my barn. And that's where Jesus was born. He was born in a barn, like literally a barn. Uh, At our house, we have a dog and my wife has a cat. It's a great cat as far as cats go. Still on the fence. These are all American pets. We have a golden retriever and we have a cat of some kind. They're clean as far as pets go and they are still nasty. I mean, if you have pets, like, you know, like, you love them, but they're gross. They shed hair everywhere. If you ever watched a pet eat, it's gross. There's their food stinks. Like, it's just the whole experience is gross. And they're all American, clean animals that live in my house. So Jesus was born in a barn, and there weren't all American animals in there. That's like livestock. That's cows. That's horses. That's goats. That's sheep. That's the nasty stuff. And Mary lays him in the manger where they eat. These are not people who have a lot of resources to fix their situation. And yet they are the two that God handpicked to raise his son. Many of you have children. Some of you, some of us have a will. You've thought about who your children would go to in the event that mom and dad both die. Let me ask you, who did you pick? You pick somebody that you could trust, 
And you probably pick someone who had the resources to make sure that they were taken care of. Doesn't mean they have to be rich, but that you knew that they were going to be taken care of. God did not do that. He picked two, a, a man and a woman, who had no resources to their name to raise his son. We also see this good news for the poor in Anna. In verse 36 of Luke chapter 2, Anna, a prophet, was there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. Anna was a prophet. It says that she never lived the, left the temple. She lived there. Uh, she might be like a nun in our day. She could have been offering some kind of service to the temple, and so they gave her a place to stay. It could be that because she had been a widow for so long, she lived at the temple and depended on the generosity of temple visitors uh, or just the temple organization itself. She stayed there. She lived there. She may have served there. But again, a widow points that out over and over again in this brief passage. She does not have, most likely, a lot of resources to her name. But she sees Jesus, overhears Simeon talking to them, and and she recognizes and believes this is the Savior that God had promised Israel, and this Savior is going to rescue Israel and rescue Jerusalem. She went and told her little community of people, who were expectantly waiting for that rescue. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus was that rescuer, but did not rescue Israel and Jerusalem the way that Anna probably anticipated. She was thinking very practically that Jesus would grow up to be a great military leader. He would grow up to be a great national leader. And through influence and military strength, he would push out the Roman Empire. He would become king of Israel. And then they would be like in the olden days of the Old Testament again, just like their ancestors. That's what she had been praying for along with this community of people. She believes that Jesus is the direct answer to that. He was not the direct answer to that, but he was the fulfillment of that. And there's a difference. If you were going to write something down, I would love for you to write down these things. There are four ways that God is going to respond to your prayers that you pray today. First, he could answer directly. You pray for something, he does exactly the thing that you're asking for. My son Jackson's in sixth grade. He had a test this week, big test. That morning, I prayed that he would do well. He came home, he got a 97, an A, right? So I gave him a hard time about those three extra things that he missed, but no, I didn't kid. Just kidding. No, it's great. God answered my prayer, one for one. I prayed exactly what I prayed happened. God can answer your prayers directly. Sometimes God says no, though. That's another way he can respond to your prayers. We don't like to hear that, but it happens. Last week, I was preaching at our other campus, and uh, that morning I was leading our prayer before church starts. We gather all our volunteers, all of our staff team, uh, our worship team, everybody who's serving that morning. We get together, we pray for you. We did that this morning here. So over there, I was praying, I was leading the prayer, and I, and I felt led to, let, let's just pray for laser focus today. You ever uh, come to church and, you know, we're like three songs in and you finally kind of warm up and you get there and you start worshiping and you're like, oh, now it's over. Now it's the preaching. I didn't want that to happen. So I said, let's just pray for laser focus, that as soon as everything starts this morning, we're ready to worship, we're ready to hear God's voice to the scripture. We're ready to pray. So we're praying for, for just that kind of focus. Church starts could not have been more opposite to the thing that we requested. There are babies crying everywhere. Like every baby in the room cried. And then if I felt like, am I the only one that hears these babies? Because the mom and dads are not acting as if their babies are crying. 
you know. And I'm like, I, like, I love babies. Like, that's like things that people know about me is I love babies. And so your baby can cry. It's great. I just need you to act like you notice that your baby is crying. That's all I need from you. You don't have to leave. I just need you to act like you know. And nobody, just sit there. Let them cry. Cry it out. That's what they were doing. And every elementary kid suddenly had to go to the bathroom as soon as I started delivering my message. Not during worship while we're all standing and you can sneak out. No, wait till everybody sits down. Make sure you sit as close to the front as possible, by the way, if you need to get up and go to the bathroom. That was happening. The screen's messed up. This is awful. Just awful Sunday. Right? I don't know why, because we asked for laser focus, but somehow in God's sovereign plan, he thought it would be better to have the most distracted Sunday that I can remember. And that happens when we pray. Sometimes he says no, and he knows why, and we probably don't ever know why. Sometimes he says, wait, not yet. And sometimes he responds by fulfilling our prayer, but not answering it directly. So you remember back in September, we had this thing we were calling Vision Sunday Schedule. We were going to bring both of our churches together. We were going to worship together. We were going to pray together for our church, for our city. We were going to remind ourselves of the kind of church that we want to be. Because we don't want to just be a normal church where you can come, read some Bible, say some prayers, sing some songs, check the box, go home, feel better about yourself, try to be as good a person as you possibly can. That is not what we are doing here. We are placing our lives in the hands of Jesus and saying, whatever you want to do, do it. That's the kind of church we want to be. And that's hard to remember. So we're going to get together. We're going to remind ourselves that that's who we want it to be. But right before Vision Sunday, you remember a little guy named Harvey came knocking on Houston's door. And we responded immediately. You responded immediately. And for a week and a half, this place was like an army base. People coming and going, serving, working long hours, serving people, getting them out of their homes, tearing apart their homes so they could dry out. We're still engaged in that work, even this past weekend. Uh, because of your generosity, some people in northeast Houston put insulation in their house, sheetrock in their house, cabinets in their house, new appliances in their house, all of that. So we're still fully engaged in it, but we were especially engaged in it in September. The church that we were borrowing has a humongous auditorium. They became a shelter for people, so it, it just we couldn't have it. But by the time we got to the end of September, I didn't really feel like we needed a reminder of who we wanted to be. We had just had a perfect visualization of that and how we responded to Houston in its greatest moment of need. That's the kind of church that we want to be. See, my prayers didn't get answered directly, but they were fulfilled. I didn't need to keep asking for that thing. And that's what happened to Anna. She had been praying that God would send a rescuer for Jerusalem, and God did, just not in the way that she expected. And I believe as I read the scripture, I think that we can say that about the prayers of the poor, that God may not answer them directly every time, but in Jesus, he does fulfill those prayers. We see it in the shepherds. Verse 8, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, 
lying in a manger. And suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in a manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. We've mentioned before that the shepherds were probably the blue collarest of all blue collar people. They had a rich history. King David, their crowning king in the history of Israel, started out as a shepherd, eventually became king. Rich history, but it was not a way to become rich, especially if you didn't own that flock. It was hard work, it was not especially lucrative. We see that they're watching their flocks at night. They're up all throughout the night watching this flock. Most likely these are hired hands, somebody else's flock. Somebody else is going to get the money. They're just being paid by the day. Hard work, not especially lucrative. And yet this is who God decided to make the kingdom announcement that his kingdom was colliding with earth in Bethlehem. Jesus was born. Why would he choose these shepherds? Because of what Jesus would later go on to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Luke's account of that same statement, he leaves off in spirit. The Gospel of Luke just says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has always been good news for the poor. But we see this way beyond the Christmas story. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 22 says, Don't rob the poor just because you can or exploit the needy in court, for the Lord is their defender, and he will ruin anyone who ruins them. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors him. What it says is that God defends the poor and aligns himself with the poor. Jesus aligned himself with the poor in Matthew chapter 25. He is talking about his return and what it's going to be like when he returns to earth, which he will, probably sooner than later. He says that he's going to divide people. Some are going to go on his right, the sheep. Some are going to go on his left, they're the goats. The sheep are with him, the goats are not with him. And the, the goats are mad. They're frustrated. They're like, oh, we don't understand why we are left out on this, that we don't get to continue to be with you, Jesus. And he said, well, I was naked and you didn't do anything. And I was hungry and you didn't do anything. I was thirsty. You didn't do anything. I was in need and you didn't do anything. They said, we never seen you like that. We never saw you naked and hungry or thirsty. We never saw any of that. And this is what he said. I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. What that tells us is that Jesus aligns himself with the poor. All right, we talk about politics here. We're always talking about poli- po- partisan politics. Right? What partisan politics means is it means that you have a political team that you identify with. And once you're on that team, you're for the team 100%. It doesn't matter what the team does. It doesn't matter what the team says. It doesn't matter what the team acts. It doesn't matter if the team does this or that or individuals on the team do. That's your team and you're with them. You're for them. You support them. You're going down on the ship with them. You'll say, well, they're not perfect and they're not great, but that's my team and I'm supporting them. Anybody else on the other team does exactly the same thing that your team does. Well, they're bad. They're awful. They're from hell. Uh, they're, they're the 
the worst, right? That's what it means to be partisan. It means I'm on this team and I'm always with this team. And when we read the scripture, God is clear. He is always on the poor's team. Always. Jesus said, however you treat the poor, that's how you're treating me. Here's the wake up call. I can have an attitude about the poor in my heart and they won't ever know. So they won't take it personal. But Jesus knows and he does take it personal. According to Jesus, the stakes are high. However we help or don't help those who are living below the standard of normal. He considers helping or not helping him. So what do we do? There's a million things we could say. There's a little verse tucked in the middle of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. So here's what I want you to do. We're getting ready to turn the corner into 2018 in just a few weeks. I want you to look at your yearly budget and I want you to create margins for the poor. Turn in the corner into 2018, you're gonna schedule out your next year. You make sure that you leave margins in your schedule to help the poor. Why? Because Jesus has always been, will always be good news for the poor. And hello, we are Jesus followers. So we should be good news for the poor too. Let's pray. God directly. God, are you speaking to me today? What's in here that has my name on it? God, give us the strength to fall through with whatever you're speaking to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.